Police One Academy is leading the way in high-quality, affordable training for officers nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 1,000 HD videos and 175 full-length courses in a robust learning management system. Training is certified or accepted for training credit in 35 states. Join the industry's most officer-friendly learning platform with more than 60,000 subscribers. To schedule a free demo, go to policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hey, this is Jim Dudley. So, Jim, we have with us uh, today two esteemed guests. Uh, Jason Potts and Renee Mitchell are law enforcement officers from California. They're, um, they're Police Foundation fellows, and they're also members of, founding members of, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. And um, we're pleased to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, so let's just dig right in. Um, let me ask you, for those who haven't really been paying attention for the last several years, please define evidence-based policing. Well, if you look at Larry Sherman and what he wrote in 1998, it, the idea is really looking at um, what works in policing based on the research that's out there, so the best available research to date, and using data and combining those two into practice. So it's a fairly simple definition. As opposed to intuition or experience or, you know, prior knowledge, we're actually digging into, you know, actual where you have kind of control groups and and really scientific study. Right. Because if you look at, I mean, I think we're becoming so much more knowledgeable about the way we work as human beings, both our brains and our bodies, um, how we react when... You know, something simple like adrenaline dumps in your body and what that does to, to your memory or, um, you know, how we drive cars under the influence of adrenaline. So all these things that we're starting to learn more about human beings, I think what we're trying to do is pull that research in rather than what we've done for the past 40 years in policing or how we've been trained. It's really looking at are we training um, our officers the best way and are we using our best advanced research knowledge to really um, create the best evidence practices that there are out there. Yeah, I was just say as well, I think for far too long we worked on hunches and instincts and anecdotal experiences. Um, but he actually mentions a Professor Sherman in his paper in 1998 is um, target, test, and track the data. So that's what we're looking at. Is this, this is based on data and not everything we do is on anecdotal experiences and hunches, even though that's a big part of police work, right? Instinct is a, is a major part, but we're saying that let's do that with data as well. And this, to kind of go to your point of hunches and instincts being important, this isn't to replace that, this is to supplement, this right. is to augment that, that which what we know with what we don't know. And to quote Rumsfeld, we sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and in order to find that out, you have to you have to do studies. Right. Exactly. And I would even argue, like some of your our intuition and hunches, is really officers picking up on behavioral patterns, and they just don't have the language to identify what they are doing. Right. And that's an area of research that hasn't been explored yet, or is just beginning to be explored. That could be with randomized control trials, or in some type of laboratory setting, really looking at you know, what, what it is that we're picking up on because... Sure, it's, it's like an officer stops somebody on the street and they, they call it a gut feeling when, when in actuality they can probably articulate it if they think about it a little bit. And that's the difference between uh, something passing muster as a Terry stop versus a what, what 
which sort of mutated into the stop and frisk stops. Right. Um, so, and I can't remember the date that it occurred, but it was only recently that they discovered we have something called mirror neurons in our brains. And what it is, is that um, we react to each other's nonverbal cues and it's almost immediate. So when your mirror neurons fire off, it fires off more quickly than, than your thinking does. Um, so we react to that very, very quickly. Um, but I want to say that that research only came out 10 years ago. So that's something right. that's unexplored in policing. So there's, when we talk about the intuition and hunch um, and, and cops not wanting to um, let go of that, I don't think it's something that we should let go of. I think it's something that we should study and learn more about. And the medical field has shown us that, right? There's so many things we can learn from the medical field. So neuroscience, right? The neuroscience of uh, victim interviews. And a lot of times how people encode, the victims, how they encode their memory, right? So uh, a lot of times it's not in a linear format. It's fragmented. And a lot of times, you know, cops will go and speak to this rape victim and say, you know, do the who, what, where, when, why, how. And they would get frustrated because the victim would say, well, I don't remember. But she's focused on the fabric of, her, of the offender's shirt. She can't tell you that he was wearing a hat or uh, had a mustache or anything else. So that's, we're learning a lot about the research. And even the research can refute a lot of things like the neuro-linguistic neuro programming. For so long, we learned the NLP, where if somebody looked down to the left, we found through research that that's just junk science, right, frankly. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this is not only to prove research, but it's also to refute um, or show the research how it works. Right. Jason, um, you authored a, 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 for lack of a better word, it's a white paper, a research report, um, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing uh, Practitioner's Perspective, the Benefits, Challenges, and lessons of evidence-based policing. It's a really long title. Um, <laughs> yes, but, it is. I, I, I think that was the abstract. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the executive summary Pre right there. Yeah. <laughs> so no, in all seriousness, uh, I did give it a read uh, this morning before we were, were meeting here. Um, it's a fascinating paper. Uh, first off, is it available online for officers out there? If they Google that title, not yet. Not so yet. it was submitted to the California Peace Officer Journal, uh -huh. and it's um, up for review actually this month. Okay. And hopefully by the end of the month, it'll be. Uh, published um, with them. Okay, so when when we revisit each other and when when this uh, does become available, please do you know let us know and I'll make that link available uh, to our members. You know, law enforcement officers come to Police One all the time and come back and revisit topics like this. Awesome. Let's get back into I appreciate you saying that. The, uh, the into the into the topic. Um, well, first off, explain to me about your 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 organization. And it's about a year old. Yes. And you're going to have your first uh, conference. Yes. Um, in I think it's is May mm -hmm. of 2017. Tell me about the organization and why it came to be, how it came to be, and and maybe give a, a little bit of uh, information about the conference. Well, I was going to say if we went into how it came to be, it's a really long, boring story that nobody wants to hear. But it really ended up that you have these major pushes for evidence-based policing. One is you have the academic world um, that is pushing for more research in policing. And then you have the, um, the feds. You have a lot of the um, BJA and NIJ that all their grant funding is based on having an evidence base for your projects and proposals you put in. But there was really no practitioner movement. So ASEBP is really geared towards the street cops. The, officers, the sergeants, lieutenants, and executive command to take control of it ourselves, because how we kind of viewed it is you have these pushes from these other areas from, and not that they're outside influences, but a little bit, and we feel like officers should be moving that, um, that agenda or moving that conversation ourselves, because there's a lot of things that 
I think officers are curious by nature and we're problem solvers by nature. So I think it should be us moving that along. Um, so it happened that there was a group of us that had all met through um, random people, but it was all through research. And we came together under the Police Foundation, under Jim Bierman. That's how I got involved in evidence-based policing was um, Jim Bierman through Redlands PD and now he's the president of the Police Foundation. And I called him one day and said, hey, there's this group of us that we wanna do something collectively because we wanna have a voice in policing about where this movement is going. And he said, if you're interested, he's like, I will help you get together the first American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. And there's, it stems from, there's already a British society, so they've been around for six years. Mm -hmm. And the Australian Society got um, up and running before us, and then the Canadian Society and our society got up and running at the same time. So there's already societies in other countries. They, they have a different um, format than we do, but we're up and running. And we're all working cops. There's not one of us that is paid. We all do it on our own time. And our goal, um, our aim is really to advocate, educate, and facilitate the use of research in policing. And we feel like the best way to do that is to take the research that's out there and to try to translate it into a usable format for cops. So videos, podcasts, short white papers, but no cop wants to read a 42-page research article. So our intent is to really be a resource to executive management and cops so they don't have to do all this um, footwork themselves. So, so uh, in the real world, so if you were to look at the 21st century policing report and the academics and the clergy people, community people, and some law enforcement leaders, uh, how would you take an approach to get your opinion in there or read it and interpret that for street cops? Well, some of the stuff, and I think um, some of the areas that they went over weren't I shouldn't say weren't well-researched, but we're at their, our infancy stages with the research. So, you know, Im implicit bias training and procedural justice training, a lot of the research gets turned into training for police departments. And yes, we know that the there is research showing we do have implicit bias. There is research showing that yes, when people are treated in a procedurally just manner, they cooperate with the police more but there's limited research about whether the training to the cops actually equates to two things. One, to a behavioral change out in the street, and two, does the behavioral change actually change the point of view of the public? So I think those are the things where we're still uneducated to some extent about police research um, because we just we don't have a society yet. And the, the American Medical Association, like Jason brought up, you know, the medical field, they go out and they educate people about what the research shows for the medical field. Um, vaccination, I know that is something that is hugely controversial, mm -hmm. but you have the medical field saying, hey, here's our reams and reams and reams of research showing why we should be doing this. We don't have those things in policing yet. So if you advance American Society of Evidence-Based Policing 150 years from now, mm -hmm. hopefully we will have those things. So when you have a presidential task force, so when you have the community members saying, why are we doing these things, we'll really have an extensive um, history of research to say, this is why we do what we do. And this is why we do it in the way we do it. So right now, like we're, I think um, the first randomized controlled trial was the Kansas City Preventative Patrol um, Experiment. experiment that was in the 70s early 70s they were pretty forward thinkers right so they had they actually showed that they could do five beats was it five beats and then five um 
non-beats and they actually were pretty aggressive. They said, well, we're going to take away from those five beats and double up these other five over here. And it was pretty forward thinking for the times and they found out that they could do this experiment without much um, backfire effect. Right. right. Well, one thing that kind of comes to mind is that there's research and there's bad research. Yes. Right. Yes. And, yes. We, and we, this part of what you guys are doing are trying to um, analyze and articulate about you know, what is good research? How do you identify good research and how do you avoid taking bad research and make implementing changes on that, on that bad research that actually wind up being detrimental to either the officers or the citizens or whomever, right? Right. Yeah, and if I, and if I could just interject, so, so Renee, you brought up a great example from the AMA and the vaccination issue. And going back into the 80s, there was the one study that did a correlation of vaccinations and autism, which was disproven down the road, never repeated the, you know, small demographics and things like that. But so how do you avoid the pitfall of putting an evidence-based study out there too soon without being vetted, without being replicated? Well, I, I don't think we're quite there yet with policing. I think that's where you get to a certain tipping point in how much research you have going on that you finally get to the point where things are being replicated. Because right now, and this, and just so you guys know too, this is just some personal opinion too, we're not experts. I mean, when you talk to the researchers, they're experts in their field. We're kind of generalists. Um, right, we're, absolutely. We're pracademics, we're the practitioner academics sure, sure. who are trying to translate this stuff into real world examples. Where it's digestible to those frontline officers. That's what this is all about, right? right. So to me, like where we're at, we haven't replicated a lot. And I think um, with Professor Sherman, you saw it with his first domestic violence study. And um, a lot of domestic violence laws were based on that first study. Well, then when they went to try to replicate it, they weren't getting the same results. Right, the Minneapolis study. Right. So there's the Society for um, Prevention Research. I know De Denise Gottfriedson, I'm probably butchering her last name. There's a couple people on it, um, and they, they advocate for efficacy and um, effectiveness testing. So they're, what they're advocating for is that before you roll something out worldwide, that you, one, test it in a laboratory-type setting. So for in a police agency, what that would look like is, you know, one, and we do this right now, a randomized controlled trial within one police organization, having a control group that doesn't get the treatment, and then the treatment area that gets the intervention. Rolling that out, seeing if it works. Then you take that and you roll it out to five other agencies. You see if it works there. Then if you still are getting those effects in, the, in a laboratory, and I'm doing air quotes when I say laboratory, if you get the effects there, then you, you run it out into the real world. And to me, in policing, like especially like an example is police training. It would be, okay, I come to your police agency, I do a train the trainer, now those trainers go out and give the course and you do a treatment and control and you see if you get the same effects. Then if you get those effects, you know, in the effectiveness testing, then you roll it out worldwide. But right now in policing, it's almost like we're at that infancy stage of we say, oh geez, we found one randomized controlled trial that said, hey, this is a good intervention. Let's all do it. Right. And, and we don't know about backfire effects. We don't know if it's going to work in your town. So that's why a lot of times when I talk to police chiefs about what they're doing in their organization, it's you've got to test this to see if it works in your area. 
because you might not find the same effects because your city's a little different, your demographics are a little different, your cops are different, you yeah. know? I would say that one size doesn't fit all, and this is highly nuanced, right? It's Evidence-based policing is not for everybody. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like Renee said, we're not experts. We're just kind of trying to evaluate this and trying to figure it out where it best fits in for the frontline level officer. But if I can just go back to the Minnesota or Minneapolis domestic violence experiment, interesting thing about this is they showed that arrest deterred crime, right? But they also showed that for those that were unemployed, that actually made things worse. And then they even thought of this thing called the sort of Democles for those that were, weren't there at the scene but then left. And then you mail that arrest warrant. So there's this like sort of Democles, like it's gonna, the, the hammer's gonna mm. drop, right? And they showed that that was effective. So, I mean, there's lots of things we learn um, from past studies, right? And we try to replicate that. Right. So. You used a word earlier, pracademic. Yes. So I don't know that I've ever heard that word before. <laughs> um, can you give me a kind of a pricey on what a pracademic is? I, I think I know, but I want I want to hear your words. Right. Well, and I don't. I can't recall where it originally came from, but it hit the criminal justice. It was used in criminal justice research, I think, in about two thousand and seven. But it's the idea of kind of like what Jason and I are. Is you get a practitioner who has been trained, because I, I look at crime analysts this way too, a lot of them are really well trained to do some really good research, and they're actually putting, either creating their own research in the field, or they really understand the difference between bad and good research and know how to implement it within their organizations. So every, everybody on our board at ASEVP, we're all or academics. We've all either done our own research, Jason's starting his first randomized controlled trial, with BetaGov, um, and that's part of why I think ASEVP could be so important because I see cops that think, oh well, you know, I I can't do that or I don't have the background to do that. Which to me, it's like, no, we're problem solvers. You just have to understand how to set up a good research design, and you could do this too. Um, when I actually did my first randomized controlled trial. I had no schooling in research design. I had really good mentors that helped me. Uh, David Weisberg, Cynthia Lum, and Chris Coper from George Mason University helped me design my research, and they just helped me understand like that it's important to have to set the parameters and then to follow those parameters, and then you know pulling good data. I think Cynthia's quote was, um, "Good science is good planning." And to me, that always stuck with me. Is yeah, you set it up beforehand, and if you know what you're doing, and you could get organizational buy-in, you could really figure out some um, really intricate things about your organization because I don't think it's just like the research that you figure out, the outcomes, it also gives you, like, it gives you insight into your organization about how you function and why certain things occur um, organizationally, like with hierarchy and officers and pushback. Um, not to go on, but like yeah, that's with, a challenge for right. us too, as well. That that do we get buy-in from everybody, even from our administrators? Do they even care to do this? There's all kinds of issues with budget concerns and everything else. Why should we even care to do this, right? But again, we go back to does it does it show? Does the data show? I mean, does this work or not? So um, the BetaGov thing, Renee talked about it quickly. Is this the BetaGov with Vallejo? Um, through Dr. Um, Angela Hawkins through BetaGov, uh, it's a nonprofit research organization and. Um, what they do is they actually help you out, help you do the research or start the research. And what we're trying to do um, in, in, in Vallejo is um, basically get this license plate reader set up where um, 
it's a randomized control trial and it's filters. There's different filters, a high filter, a low filter, and then there's no control at all. And we're just trying to see the effectiveness of license plate readers. So it's an easy study. And the whole point of this is that even frontline, even mid-level supervisors can implement randomized control trials and you can, imp and you can empower your cops right. and get them to be like, hey, I care about this because now I'm empowered. I own this. You know what I mean? So, and it's not, it's exciting because other people can do it. And this BetaGov group is led by Dr. Angela Hawking and Maureen uh, Hillhouse are doing some good things. Um, you, you talk about owning this. Um, and before we came, came to air, we were talking a little about one of the challenges um, in, in getting cops to embrace and to own. Um, and the phrase that we were using was um, cops want to go out and hunt crime and, and they don't want to deter it necessarily. Mm -hmm. They want to go out there and, and catch bad guys. And EBP is really a lot, large part about prevention and 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 deterrence, right? Sure. So how do you get, how do you get past that hurdle? How do you get officers to go? All right, this is this is actually good for me. I think in um, Renee's jurisdiction with the hotspot policing um, experiment, I think it was really um, really good. It empowered um, her and her group that were there. Um, to show that if you get folks in a hotspot area, as we know, the research shows that three to five percent of all crime happens in fifty percent of most geographic locations. And if you can put the cops in those dots, if you will, and just have them there for twelve to sixteen minutes, what they call the Coper curve, you can have a residual deterrence of of crime prevention for two hours. So you do that every two hours for fifteen minutes, and you can just think about um, how crime will fall. I mean, in a lot of jurisdictions, I think it's twenty five percent in some of these jurisdictions that do these hotspot policing uh, experiments. Well, and I think also with EBP too is right now it's it's maybe narrow, but as we get more <clears throat> RCTs going on, you get more good quasi experiments going on, it's not just going to be this narrow fo focus of like deterring crime because there's also um, they're looking at, you know, like I was saying, the training, like with implicit bias training and procedural justice training, they're looking at the effects of um, the training on the officers. And then Greg Stewart up in Portland, their training group, um, he's, he was the sergeant of crime analysis, and we were running a whole um, hotspot program up there called Neighborhood Involvement Locations. We called it NILOC. Um, but by helping his organization get comfortable with research, their whole training team, they got the new um, SUVs and they're, and I'm going to screw up the story because I always screw up stories, but there's a braking issue. So they took the whole team out and they used like lasers and speed and they did, ran like 165 different runs of the car and like figured out like the speed and the time and they figured out this issue. He actually published it. I have the, the link somewhere, but to me that's a good type of research because they're running like a simulation over and over and over again to say hey there might be a problem with front-end braking with the load on the SUV but it's really because he built that I think like I said once again my opinion but I think once you build a culture in an organization where you kind of sit there as cops and go hey like why does that happen and I want to know why that happens or there's this problem why is there this problem and I want to figure out that problem you become empowered to go, okay, well, if I want to research this, like the difference between bad and good research, how would I design that to actually see if the intervention I'm looking at or see if the problem I'm looking at, if we're effective at combating that? So it's not just about deterrence. I think EBP could broaden as we get more comfortable doing this and reaching out to the academics and mm -hmm. getting mentoring and be comfortable with 
knowledge outside of our very small, narrow range. Yeah, and showing what works in technology. We haven't talked about this, but body cameras. And one of the founding members of ASCBP, Josh Young, uh, he did uh, quite a few studies. He did two studies, actually. One was um, in Ventura, um, and the other was contagious accountability. Um, and what he sh has shown is that um, it's a civilizing effect with body cameras, right? So the fact that you're going to behave different as well when you're on camera, you being the offender and me being the police. So there's this contagious accountability for all parties. So he's shown a lot of um, um, studies on that. And as far as just being able to implement a randomized control trial, and he was just a regular officer or a corporal in his in his police department, and he was able to do it. So yeah, and that reminds kind of me point. of the uh, the results that came out of Rialto. Right. Uh, the Rialto chief uh, did a really good study and, and had very similar uh results and uh, his, his, his study is really quite powerful. Um, one last thing, I mean, a couple of last things, you know, tell me about your study. Tell me about how that got done. Well, I was going to say, can I back up for two seconds you about can. Tony? Okay, so the, one of the things I was going to say about the conference, because um, Tony Jane, being Chief Farrar. Yeah, Chief Farrar. Chief Farrar, sorry. Um, <laughs> I went to school with Tony, so I just, at I just know, at, at Cambridge, Cambridge right? yeah, so I just know him as Tony. Um, is that's kind of where a lot of this stuff started too is over at the University of Cambridge is um, that's where Josh Young went um, and a couple of our um, board members went there too Rachel Tolber and then uh, Stu Greer also went to Cambridge and that's where Larry Sherman's at and that's where he is cultivating all these pracademics over there to really empower the British police to do their own research and that's where Tony um, started the body-worn camera study but for our conference in May, that's what we were trying to highlight. Like Josh is gonna be presenting on his work. Uh, BetaGov is coming with um, Jason to start presenting on their work and how they're, how they're implementing it. But the whole conference is really about the pracademics coming to um, highlight their work and how they did it. Because I, like I said before, I think there's like fear surrounding that. Um, and that's where, you know, back to my study, it was the same thing for me. I had actually, um, Met Jim Bierman, so if you ever meet Jim Bierman, um, he has always been a proponent of evidence-based policing. I didn't know it existed, and I always prided myself on being a very well-educated police officer. Um, but through meeting him, I met Cynthia Lum. I happened to be doing a Fulbright at the time with the London Metropolitan Police Service. So Jim was the one that suggested that I make the University of Cambridge my host university. So I ended up spending two weeks on their master's program and meeting um, Professor Sherman. And he is the, you know, the godfather of evidence-based policing and had done the original 1995 um, Minneapolis hotspot study. Um, so there I learned about hotspots and how to deter offenders. And when I got home, I became the sergeant of crime analysis. And when I became the sergeant, um, I thought, well, maybe I should try this whole randomized controlled trial stuff. And then David Weisberg and Cynthia and um, Chris Coper were kind enough to mentor me in it. So like I said, I, hadn't, I had no more than two weeks of sitting in classes and reading about evidence-based policing. And um, from what Larry tells me, I'm actually the first officer to ever run a randomized controlled trial without like having university oversight. But now if you look at it, it's I kind of, this is horribly arrogant, but I equate myself to the guy that broke the four minute mile, <laughs> um, Roger Barrister, it's Barrister, right? Yes, I and then everybody Bannister. after him, not everybody, but Bannister, that's it, Bannister, that guy. Um, after, you know, people started breaking that four minute mile. So mm -hmm. I think it's, and that's why we created the organization because I think 
once people see an average Joe do something, and that's the way I look at myself as an average um, Joe Jet, I guess, is other people say, I can do it too. And it empowers folks too, right? Yeah, if you think yeah. about it, with and learn, back to uh, Professor Sherman, one of his uh, fascinating studies is what works and what doesn't, the paper on what works and what doesn't. He talked about scared straight. And again, we're refuting stuff. So this research isn't about proving or showing what works. It's also about showing what doesn't work, right? So scared straight <laughs> is an interesting thing that he learned that that doesn't work, right? Right. And a lot of this is about challenging the norms, yeah. challenging what, you know, the pre-existing conditions. And, the, you know, the John Bostain is a, it's a great police trainer uh, out of Georgia, or maybe now he's in Michigan. Um, and he says uh, famously, why do we know what we think we know? Hmm. And you have to you have to basically go back to why do we train the way we train? Mm -hmm. What what is it we're doing? Yeah, unfortunately, it, a lot of times it's it it's because we've always done it that way. It's always been right? that way, right? Or this, that cognitive dissonance, right? And, and I was reading um, a good book, uh, Black Box Thinking, by is it Said? Yeah. And he talks about he and in one of the chapters in his book he talks about Galileo, and how he's trying to explain to Galileo that the Earth, the the universe doesn't revolve around the Earth. And he's trying to explain this, and he's showing the Pope, and the Pope's like, I don't want to look at that, because I have my thoughts. I know what it is. So I kind of, you know, obviously that's an extreme example, but I keep, it's a fascinating thing to think about. It, we've always had those issues with cognitive dissonance and, and believing what we want to believe. The world is not flat. <laughs> there right? you go, right. <laughs> you know? But you have to have that one person, that one pioneer, challenge that. Exactly. And do it in a forceful enough way that you actually get buy-in from people, right? right? Well, and that I love that book, Black Box Thinking. Yes. And one of the things he talks about in there is how if you look at the medical field, and he doesn't say it like this, but I do. Not that it was a joke, but they didn't really understand a lot of things about the human body until they started doing randomized controlled trials. One of the things he mentions there is how he did bloodletting for 1,500 mm. years. Because, um, and he calls them closed loop systems and an open loop system is you're not testing your theory. So for years, if you died after you had, you know, your blood was leaded, then it was like, oh, well, you were too far gone. And if you lived, it must have been the bloodletting. But there was nothing looking at, okay, did, mm. did this group have it and this group didn't? And he shows that our knowledge of science and, the, and human beings like exponentially went up with RCTs because unless you have a control group that you don't treat, you never know. And our human perception of things, like our opinions of things, doesn't mean that that's true. Like that's, like especially with police training, um, somebody, it's somebody else's word, it's not mine, but uh, edutainment. You go to a police class, and the instructor's funny, they're personable, it's an enjoyable class. You walk out and say, that was a great class, I'd go to that class again. And then suddenly that becomes the new police training. But it didn't mean that you changed behavior, it didn't mean that you really learned anything, right. it just means you had a good time for eight hours. Yeah, no, and we could learn so much from the medical community, and I think we are stealing some of their concepts. Like Sarah, I think, originally came from uh, the CERA scan analysis response and uh, assessment. Um, epidemiology, the, the study of disease and injury and illness, um, we could learn so much, but then we have Congress blocking funding for, for important things like gun violence and gun injuries. So how do we get evidence-based policing to the electeds? Because 
before you got elected, you could be a salesman oh, or right. uh, own a store oh, yeah. or, yeah. Uh, you know, run a computer company. God but, forbid an attorney. But yeah. yeah, but tomorrow you're elected and now you are an expert on education and health and law enforcement and financial, uh, you know, economics. So how do we get evidence-based policing to electeds? Well, that's, for me, that is one of our goals for ASDBP is, uh, I mean, personally, I think we need to grow this as a profession because we need to have a voice in this and we need to educate people. And I think that's a piece right now where you have politicians coming in saying, I want this training for police. I mean, even the presidential task force, they're saying, here, I want this police training, this police training, this police training. That's millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. I mean, probably billions. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know the, the cost of it. But you're talking about training where, and you know, if you're a cop, you know how these trainings work. You have 40 hours that you have to go to. We show up, our eyes glaze over, we stare at the instructor for eight hours, and we do our to-do lists in our head, and half the class texts, we're waiting for lunch, right? We're waiting for lunch. Where are we going for lunch? Right. Nobody's asking a question at the end of the day. <laughs> right. No one's asking a question. And we want a long lunch, and we want to be let out early. Um, and we walk out, and we and we haven't changed anything. But everybody jumps on the bandwagon, and Ed Flynn actually um, has a great quote, and it's something to the effect of, and I will butcher it, that every basically social problem in the world can be solved by police training. And I mean, you saw that with the presidential task force. It was a lot of training, 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 but yet we don't know if our training is effective for mm. our cops, you know? So right. there's, a, there's a lot of things in there. The, the politicians need to be better educated about how they spend their money. Um, and that's something Jim Bierman always says is, you know, you have to be good stewards of the taxpayers' monies. So if you're just gonna say, let's spend these millions of dollars on police training, well, I would hope that we would know if that police training is actually gonna get you the behavior you want. Mm -hmm. Cause there is um, some research out there that shows like certain implicit bias training actually has a backfire effect. Mm -hmm. Like it makes you more biased than you actually were before. And, the, and Lois James is, is um, with that, what do you call CBT? Yeah, uh, counter bias training. So that's some good stuff. I don't know if you want to yeah. talk about that as far as what she's trying to do. Um, to use, with... you know, uh, simulator training um, for shoot, don't shoot, and have officers like reflect on their biases and the decisions that they're making. And she's more hands on. Right. 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 And she's showing that that is effective, it's an effective tool to reduce bias. And that's a mm. thing, like you, you have to look at Because it's it. contextual. Right. 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 So, I mean, it's, it, it's those things that you have to look at. How are we doing things? And you've got to get past the expense of something, too, because why spend, you know, a million dollars on training that gets you nothing when if you spent a little bit more up front, you're actually getting behavioral change from the officers? Right. And, and these recommendations for training always or usually uh, lay the problem on the doorstep of the law enforcement officers. But in the medical community... We don't say the doctor's at fault for the patient's uh, poor eating habits or right. lack of exercise Smoking, or drinking. obesity. So at, at some point, the medical community recognized that and asked to change the behavior of the, the patient as well as the, the doctor. So are we going to get to the point where evidence-based policing influences uh, how we change the behavior of the people that we take on, uh, that we educate them. I mean, the biggest, I think one of our biggest 
faults in law enforcement is we don't educate the public enough. When, when do we start yes, doing absolutely. that? Absolutely. And Ms. C. O'Lynn brings up a good point about de-escalation, right? De-escalation requires cooperation. Mm-hmm. So right. we need to all, this is, we're in this together, right? This is what, that's the point, so. Well, and I think that's where some of, the, there's, there's a ton of research out there that we don't even know about in policing when it comes to mental health issues or education issues. And those are also things that not, I don't think it should go back to the officer to get more, you know, uh, mental health training on, on the people in the field. It might be that we need to work with our mental health officials better mm. um, because there's a, a huge social network. One of the coolest things that I learned when I was at the London Met is they passed like a, a statute in 19, I want to say 94 something, basically saying um, crime was not the, a police problem. Crime was a community problem and every city entity will be involved with deterring crime. Mm-hmm. So they would have these meetings every two weeks and it blew my mind because it was like city parking, uh, the fire department, um, utilities. Um, I can't think of any other city agency, but... And when they had an issue, so they had a a remodel of this park. So I guess this park, just like a lot of parks, attracted a lot of drug dealers, prostitutions, or prostitutes, um, a bad element. And they revamped the whole thing, like put in a nice fountain. And so their opening day, the fire department was out there, the tree trimmers were out there, everybody was out there. And the idea behind it, once again, this isn't evidence-based, I don't know if it works, I just liked the idea of it's everybody's problem. They said, if you're, if we put a have a burglary issue, then we're going to put our tree trimmers, tree, trimming trees in the areas that there's burglaries. Because if a burglar sees a city patch, they know at least, okay, that person can call a police officer. And it's also the idea of um, that there's a, there's a guardian present right, right. Um, for the triad. Yeah, that's the septed com, uh, right. concept of Risk crime, pre- modeling too, is crime prevention yeah. through environmental design. And and when we talk about community policing, a lot of those agencies, Park and Rec, DPW, they hear the policing part and they don't they don't feel the buy-in. But we we did that years ago. We we still try here in San Francisco to invite those other agencies to share the problem. Mm-hmm. It's it's really just community policing on steroids. Right. And, you know, again, there may or may not be um, a large incremental increase in uh, crime prevention, but if you get the buy-in from everybody, then you might begin to educate the public. Because right. you're going to have a parks and rec person mm-hmm. actually know what the program is about and actually know why we're trimming the trees here and now and, and know why the, uh, the, the, the you know, we got to have a presence of whomever else right you know on the street in different in different neighborhoods and i like their concept because they were saying you know they're we're not telling anybody to do their job differently we're just telling them to do their job here so wherever the issue was you're going to do your job for the day here um and the idea is routine activities theory you know if there's a suspect and an offender or a suspect and a victim with no capable guardian then you have a crime that could potentially occur well by using the city resources that way you're putting a capable guardian in place where people are being victimized. So I just mm-hmm. I just thought it was an interesting concept. Like I said, it hasn't been studied yet, but it's something that could be studied. Yeah, it's empowerment. I give, go back to that word, it's empowerment. We're empowering our citizens and we're, you know, it takes a village. Is that over you saying? Yeah. Well, so. either using your own research or someone else's research, um, can you give me an example of how research was implemented, implemented, implemented into concrete policy that you know that had an had an effect. Is there is there an example that could come to mind? 
oh, that's like putting us on the spot. And yeah. now I'm like running through my research in my head. But the first thing I think about is procedural justice. I'm a big fan of procedural justice. I don't know if there's policy on that. I mean, the the president's task force on 21st century policing that was a big part of it in Tom Tyler's research. Um, um, fairness, giving folks a voice, proportionality, transparency. That's huge, right? I mean, we just explain the process. There's a Queensland study as well that they talked about that. But do you explain the process? Take the time to explain the process when we're doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, there's so much you can get from that. You just—it's a force, mul force multiplier, right? Well, I think the obvious choices are Operation Ceasefire in Boston, where you yeah. you had academics and police and public health and schools and parole and probation, and everybody got together, identified their part yeah, in sure. the problem, looked at who was being, you know, they did the epidemiology study, right? right? They went from death and shooting injury all the way back to who had the guns and what the fights were about, and if, you, if the parole agents and probation agents did their job, and they made real significant reduction in those deaths and injuries and, and the crime. Right. Project Exile as well, same model, right, yeah. in Virginia. Well, Operation Nightlight, the uh, the juvenile probation mm -hmm. uh, plan in Boston. Right. And, if I mean, if you're looking for policy, the one concrete thing I could think of is the body-worn camera because um, mm -hmm. they were looking at the difference um, on outcomes when a policy said should turn on oh, your yeah. camera versus <laughs> shall turn on your camera. Um, so those are the kind of things that I think are really interesting in research because you have different outcomes with the use of one word in a policy. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I think are very... Um, That's huge. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's huge, and it's, and it's a great learning um, process for us in policing to think about, geez, one word in a policy makes a huge difference on the outcomes for our communities. And that's something else we advocate at ASEBP that we're not just advocating for, okay, do these, this type of um, engagement with the community or do this type of intervention or this type of sanction. We're advocating for things that work for the community or that work to prevent crime, but also doesn't harm the community. Because that's the other piece I think, um, so part of my work that I did um, in Cambridge was translating um, crime counts in the hotspot study to a crime harm index. So there's a couple crime harm indexes. There's the Cambridge crime harm index, and then Jerry Ratcliffe made another one based on um, social harm, and there's a Canadian crime harm index that they go, they use um, sentencing data to figure out the harm to the, to the public. And I think that's another thing is, you know, you look at these crime counts, well, we're counting, you know, a robbery the same as like a vandalism, you know, mm -hmm. and you're looking at a total crime count rather than looking at a crime harm. So those are the things that I think like it informs us better through evidence-based policing and it's a different measurement. And those are the things that I think um, just enlightens us more as a profession and makes us more professional because that is part of being a profession is that we have a body of knowledge that we continue to expand upon and research at an academic level, not just as a, hey, this works for our organization level. And same with juvenile offenders, right? With Professor Sherman, the less we do with juveniles, the better. There's research that shows mm -hmm. um, how effective that is to not sometimes do things with juveniles. Right. Mm -hmm. We're quick so, to suspend, we're quick to expel. Yeah, I, I kind of think so. So tell me again a little more about uh, ASEBP. Uh, who can be a member? Anybody. I mean, Honestly, we opened it up to the community too, so community members, because there's nothing to hide. It's police research. I, I want the public to be educated. We don't want to just say, okay, it's only for cops. You know, it is 
built by cops, but we want academics, we want students, um, we want the community to be part of it. Um, we want to build our knowledge um, because, like I said, I think I think the way we will become um, useful as a organization to policing and to the public is when we have enough people that are experienced and have the expertise. Because, like I said, for Jason and I, you know, I have a very narrow um, range of expertise when it comes to the research. Um, so if you ask me, I had somebody ask me about the community engagement research, and I ha I'm like, I have no clue. I'm sure there is, but that's not an area I've ever looked at. But by expanding our community, and I like something as simple as a listserv, you know, a discussion forum, where that person could post, hey, I'm looking for any research on community engagement, that they could find somebody like Jason and I that's a working cop or an academic to say, here's what I know, and here's the articles that have been printed. The other biggest hurdle we have in policing is we don't have access to research journals. So for myself, I have access as a student, um, and half of ASEBP has access as students, but once you're not a student anymore, if you want one journal, ar journal article, it's $35. Right. And often you mm -hmm. read an abstract, and you print it out, and then you read the article, and you're like, that's not the information I needed. So we're working with NIJ, um, the National Institute of Justice. They have a lead scholar program. So Jason is a lead scholar. It's a law enforcement analytic data scholar. Law enforcement advancing data sorry, science. Sorry. Law enforcement advancing <laughs> data and science. What it stands for. Yeah, yes. Sorry. Similar. Yeah, it's really close. Um, so their program is actually a program to pull the pracademics together. Um, so they do support ASEBP. Um, I think of our board five are lead scholars. Um, and they're trying, and they're going to do a leads agency um, also program where they will go in and they will help develop an organizational's an organization an organization's capabilities to do their own research, similar to what to Jason did in his organization and what I did in mine. But ASCBP, our goal with NIJ is to build um, what my dream is is a catalog um, where you could go in as a cop and not think like an academic, where an academic would go in and say, okay, what's all the procedural justice um, info I need? And then go into Google Scholar and they'd put in procedural justice and then procedural justice training. They would put it in as um, from a research perspective, right? We want to build it where it's from a cop's perspective. Hmm. So they, they do it where they could say, I have this problem. This is how big my agency is. This is when it occurs. This is who the problem population is. These are my outcomes. And they could punch it into a computer and out pops all the research that has to do with that problem. And then through ASCBP, it comes out in a format that is digestible to the officer in a video, in a podcast, in a two-page paper, and not in a 35-page article that is something for our membership to have. So that's the, I mean, the ultimate goal of ASEBP is to translate all this stuff and really become a resource for police organizations around the country. And our first annual conference will be held May 22nd and 23rd. Um, in partnership with Arizona State University down in Arizona State. Yeah, nice. and Police Foundation as well. Yeah. yeah. And will you have breakout session uh, training? Um, so there's a couple formats we have. We actually are going to run like an innovation lab. Um, Laura Huey is the, um, the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. She runs their organization. She's going to come down and run a workshop. So if you have a problem, uh, her and a handful of other people will run people through. No. Like how do you solve that problem? How do you 
um, find the research, how do you find the resources if you need an academic partner. And then we'll have panels, um, like I said before, of cops that have actually done their own work. Mm. Um, and then we're doing, we're ripping off, you know, TED Talks, and we're calling them PEP Talks, um, poli <laughs> Police um, Evidence and Practice, and doing 20-minute talks of just more thought-provoking, like how do you, what is evidence-based policing, how do you get it out into the field? Um, and those talks so far are going to be by David Klinger out of the... Um, University of Missouri, St. Louis, and then Jerry Ratcliffe of Temple University, um, and then Taser, um, they're our sponsor. They're probably going to do one about um, technology and how you take evidence-based policing and use technology to advance the research. Um, and then the other group that's um, probably going to be working with us is Thorn. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that actually um, mines the dark web and the internet to um, search for sexual predators. Mm. And then they give that information to um, police agencies. They partner with police agencies. But they use the actual experts, like your, your um, computer science people that are creating the programs, creating the algorithms, to figure out how to get that off the web to assist policing. Hmm. Well, imagine if we did that for you know gang activity or organized crime. Like there's there's so many things that we could be doing, like that is innovative that we could research. So those are kind of the things that we're really doing at the at ASB. yeah. And so many benefits to show that front level uh, line officer, right? Research doesn't have to be lengthy, doesn't have to be complicated, doesn't have to be expensive. There's so many things, right? Even drones, we haven't talked about that. Right. The, um, drones and what they can do, disaster management, crime scene. Um, uh, photos. I mean, even from a SWAT perspective, the MRAP uh, controversy, the armor, and how important that is for our officers because if we really want to contain mm -hmm. things and slow things down, then the public needs to be informed, right? And they need to know that, hey, you need to put armor here at the one-two side and, and know that that's why they have the armor. That's why they have that big, bad MRAP out there. So all that stuff is important. And the whole point is we really need to get this down to the frontline front line level officer that research doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, they can do it. and sometimes there's conflicting training out there. Right. Um, you know, the old adage that the doorway was the, the death trap, right? right, the funnel. Well, I, I went to a, a breakout um, panel at IACP in San Diego this last um, year in October, and uh, there was there was talk of sending the stack immediately through the entrance so that everybody's in the room and they engage, as opposed to staying at the doorway. So. Sure. Who's the tiebreaker? Two to a room as opposed to three to a room, right, or right. dynamic versus surrounding call out. There's all kinds of things, right? I just really quickly want to bring this up: the tourniquet issue, right? For all too long, we were told, "Don't put a tourniquet on," or if you do, you know, you're going to lose a limb. Now it's when they're hemorrhaging, get that tourniquet on, and that's saving a lot of lives. I mean, they've they've shown that that saved lives in Boston, the Boston Marathon. So the tourniquet's huge. There's been a shift, and that's just a good example for medical research how that's kind of overlapped and kind of gone into the police world. Um, I just want to reiterate for everyone listening, it's the Evidence-Based Policing Conference. Uh, 2017 is taking place in um, Arizona State University in Phoenix, Arizona, May 22nd and 23rd. It is sponsored by Taser. It's in partnership with the Police Foundation and Arizona State University. For conference information, just go to www.americansebp.com. And uh, I want to thank you both for a great discussion, a good deal of time spent on a really important topic. Thank you, thanks thank, for having us. Uh, thank you for having thank us, you. it was an honor, thank you.